Bible and <clears throat> turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. As we look at one of the parables that Jesus taught as we prepare to come to the Lord's table in just a few moments. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. This is referred to most often as the parable of the rich fool. I would entitle it, Are You Ready? Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That ends the reading of God's holy word. If you were here last week or the past couple of weeks, we've looked at different parables, and I told you that a parable is not the same as an illustration. In an illustration, the teacher, or the preacher in this case, gives an abstract truth and then tries to clarify it with some kind of example or story. That's an illustration. But a parable is different. A parable is something that's tossed alongside the truth. And then the listener has to make the connection. The listener has to work at it in order to get it. And so in this parable, a truth is stated. Beware of greed and covetousness, for your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then Jesus takes this story of this rich man and he tosses it alongside. But he leaves it up to the listener, to you and me, to make the connection with the truth that he has given a huge crowd had gathered to listen to Jesus. Some had walked from very, very far away. And he, we know from the previous verses leading up to this, had been teaching on some very weighty matters about God's control over everything, about the Holy Spirit, among other things, about the coming day of judgment. And amidst such substantive teaching and subjects, this man blurts out with this question that seems so unrelated. Verse 13 says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. It's really more of a demand than a question. And it's out of place. You might even say it's rude because he changes the eternal subject to that of what is mundane. And Jesus responds in verse 14, Man... Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? It's a severe response. It's a sharp response. It would be like someone, a stranger, coming up to you and asking you a question. You saying, lady or man, what am I ta- why am I going to say that to you? It's, it's, not a, it's not a general response. 
Jewish rabbis were often asked to arbitrate disputes of this manner. But Jesus is saying that's not why he's here. And the man's question shows that he doesn't understand who Jesus is or why he's come. It's totally out of context. There's no shortage of judges and magistrates who could have helped this man with his inheritance issues. But Jesus refuses to get involved, to intervene in that, not because he's not qualified, but because that was not his mission. That was not the purpose for why he had come. And so he goes to the the heart of the matter, the motive behind the man's comment, and he says it to everyone who was listening to him. Take care. Be on your guard against all, all covetousness. So what's the man's issue? Greed. Covetousness. And Jesus says, take care. Other translations are, be on your guard. Be on your guard against every kind of covetousness, every kind of greed, every form. Covetousness in the Bible is just the uh, consuming desire to have more and more. It's living as though the accumulation and the enjoyment of those possessions is the main purpose of life. It's what gives meaning to life. And Jesus here is warning his followers to be proactive, to defend themselves against that, to ward it off. He says covetousness is an enemy that needs to be beaten back. And the reason he tells us, the reason it's an enemy to be beaten back is because it will divert you and me from what is truly important. And we are not accustomed to viewing life from Jesus' perspective. We need... We typically view wealth as uh, neutral, morally neutral. And then we define whether it's good or bad based on how you use it. And so it's typical, I think, in our day and in my background and assuming your background and our whole culture, pursue it, desire it. And yet it's very unnatural then to read where Jesus almost refers to the pursuit of wealth as an enemy. And he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So when we ask ourselves, what is the life worth living? I I think in our hearts, we know what to say in church. We know the answer to give in a Sunday school class. But in our hearts, we think that's, that's the type life worth living, is the abundant material life. That's what we see. That's what's presented to us. That, in many of our cases, bless our parents and grandparents, is the way we were raised. And sadly, that's the way we're raising many of our children, too. And to think that, well, all that really matters is the pursuit of always having enough, having more. And so we see the celebrities and we envy their lives or their freedom or their vacations. And we think, that now that's the life worth living. That's the life. And so we dream and scheme to make it so. And students pick their courses on the bottom line. Employment decisions are made based on, well, how can I make the most money? Then that's the job I'll take. Then people acquire massive debt to finance their dream. Why? Because it appears the life of more is the life. That's the life worth living. That's the life we have to have. But Jesus says life, real life, true life, does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And so Jesus says that philosophy is a lie. And he says it's a lie because it will send you in the wrong direction. 
That philosophy of life will drive you where you don't want to go. It will send you down the wrong road. And so covetousness is dangerous because it will direct our life in a way, in a direction, down a path that we should not go, that we don't want to go. And it will be opposite of what really matters. Christ said that we do not live by bread alone, that the Psalms say the fullness of joy is known only in God's presence. It says those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. And so it's in this context that Jesus gives the parable. And now he's going to tell this little parable, a short parable. He tosses it right next to the truth about beware of covetousness. Here's the parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And the man thought to himself, what shall I do? For why I have nowhere to store my crops. What can we say about this man? Two things. First, he lives as though there is no God. He's not called here an atheist. He's not even called an agnostic. And many of us who claim to know God still live like this man who leaves God out. God is not a factor in this man's perception. He interprets life. He determines the meaning in life just based within himself. He lives as though if there is a God, he does not exist. And he's unaware of the source of his wealth. That's how we see that he leaves God out. And so he faces a dilemma that few people face. He's in an enviable position that he has this land that God in his blessing has made so productive that he doesn't even have room to store all the wealth that is now been obtained. You might say, well, this is wonderful. This is a great blessing. But so we have to ask the question, how did he get the wealth? What made the land productive? Proverbs teach that it's the blessing of God that makes one rich. Proverbs chapter 10. The, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 says, what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, whatever you have, God has given that to you. But this man is oblivious to the source of the blessings. He's unaware that God has had a hand in his wealth. So he asked, what shall I do? Well, he had many options. He could be thanking God. He could endeavor to serve God by giving away portions of what he had. He could have done a lot of good for others. But instead, he sees it as entirely his own. And his primary concern is to store it to hang on to it, to keep it. His worry is that he might lose it. Matthew Henry, probably the most read common Bible commentator of all time, he says, anxiety is the common fruit of an abundance of this world and the common fault of those who have abundance. It always brings concerns. How am I going to keep it? How am I going to store it? How am I going to keep from losing it? And so he is unaware of any higher use of his wealth and personal consumption. He doesn't pray about what to do with it. He doesn't seek godly counsel. It says he reasons to himself. Notice the repetition of the word my. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. He's not trying to help anyone else. He's concerned only with himself. And so he fails to see his wealth as a blessing and gift from God, a gift of which he is a steward, a manager. 
And so he presumes that his, uh, it is his own, and therefore it's at his disposal and at his beckoning. So he says in verse 19, I'll say to myself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. We also see he's unaware of his mortality. He assumes he has many years to come. He's planning for the future. And so he looks forward to years of pleasure. He plans to to live those years out enjoying this fruit from the land. That's how most of us live. We assume we have time. We assume what we have is ours to enjoy. We assume our time is our own. But any of us with any years on us, and I'm not alone in this, I can tell, uh, we have lived long enough to know of people, uh, older couples, who worked and saved for years and years, and for that time when they would retire and they built that new house or that vacation house. And more often than not, many times I've heard and known firsthand where within a matter of a year or a few months, sometimes even a few days after that happened, one of them dies. And everyone says, I can't believe it just retired two weeks ago or they just moved into that house three months ago and now he dropped dead or she dropped dead none of us can know none of us can know that we assume too much now it's not just a problem for the elderly youth in particular live as though they are mortal do you know that during world war ii our armed forces found that the prime age the best age for a fighter pilot was 18. Sounds kind of young, doesn't it? 18 years old was the best age for a fighter pilot. They were even noticeably, that was even a noticeably better age than a 22-year-old. And the reason was that 22-year-olds, by the time someone's 22, even then, they began to have a sense of their own mortality. But an 18-year-old, they think they're going to live forever. Then and now. That's what they think. But the fact is, none of us can know. None of us know if we have another day, and so it is unwise, it is foolish to live and plan as though we do. That's what Jesus is saying. You could die at any instant. I could die at any instant. And so the question is, are you ready? Not, will you be ready when the time comes? Jesus is saying, are you ready now? Are you ready now for that which you cannot anticipate when it will happen? You need to be ready. The goal of this sermon is to make sure you're ready. The second thing about this man, not only does he leave God out, but he meets reality in this parable. God says to him in verse 20, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's a pretty strong term from God. Fool? What is a fool? In the Bible and in life, a fool is someone who lives contrary to reality. They live contrary to reality. It would be a builder who ignores the laws of gravity. It might be a farmer who ignores the seasons. And we'd say that's foolish to plant at that time of year. Everyone knows that. Anyone who ignores the nature of things... But the greatest fool in the Bible is the person who ignores the greatest reality, which is God. 
That's why Psalms say, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Because the fool has ignored two crucial facts. First, that you and I are mortal. This man is told, This night your soul is required of you. That your life is over. Tonight. No second chance. There'll be no more opportunities. You will stand before God and you are utterly unprepared. The man in this parable has lived like one who is unaware of his own mortality, and therefore he is completely unprepared for death. He's completely unprepared to stand before his maker. He was not ready. Jesus wants you to be ready. It also shows us here that you and I are accountable. The term there, this night your soul is required, That term required is the idea of a loan being repaid, called back. The bank says, you you owe this amount of money and we are calling back in the loan right now. It is required. We have barred our lives from God. They are not our own. God has loaned them to us. Now he wants to know what has this man done with the life that God loaned him. Did you honor God? Did you waste it? Did you consume it only on yourself? Did you live for the present with no eye toward the future of eternity? Did we put it to good use? Did we address the needs of our own soul and the souls of others? Did we prepare for eternity? It's not other people that are calling this man a fool. It's God. Someone wrote, The really foolish thing about this man was his confident assurance that the future was in his control. The confident assurance that the future was in his control. Life is uncertain, and it hangs by a thread. Our lives are so fragile, it's scary of how little it takes that could take our life. At any moment, we might be called upon to give an account of ourselves. And so to live what Jesus is saying is to live for material things only and to rely on them is foolish. It's to not to deny the reality of what life is all about. It's to live contrary, contrary to the true nature of things. And so when he says, This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Isn't that an interesting question? Ladies, that furniture that... And, and those things that, you, that maybe have been passed down to you and you cherish, and you rightly so, you know where they will be one day? In the hands of another woman. All of our stuff. I look around my office. I have a study over a garage at home. The desk I have belonged to my father. I have a file cabinet that I bought from someone down in South Florida. I look in their possessions that belong to my grandfather. They have no economic value. I keep them because they belong to him. We have things in our house that belong to our, our mothers and our grandmothers. So just visualize your stuff is going, this question, and the things you prepared, whose will they be? In most cases, you don't know who will have that thing that you poured your life out for to acquire. And Jesus is describing this as a tragedy. It's nothing to rejoice about. The man wasn't ready. Jesus gives this parable so that you and I will be ready. Let's bring this to a conclusion. Please, Chip. How to be ready. 
He says in verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. To lay up treasure for ourselves is just to accumulate for the sake of now, the present. Why is this foolish? Because we are mortal. Because one day we will give an accounting of ourselves. Because life is more than the abundance of what we have. Further in Luke 12, Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves purses which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we need to beware of the dangers of having wealth and pursuing wealth. Take seriously the threat that it poses. Don't lay up treasure upon earth, but instead be rich toward God, which means be rich in the things of God. Be rich in the things that are pleasing to God. Here's how you do that if you want to be rich toward God. To have treasure in heaven, you need Christ in your heart. You cannot do this on your own strength. It's to recognize our problems of sin that has produced death, that we cannot do enough good things to make ourselves right with God, that God provided Christ as a redeemer, that he became the substitute when he died on the cross and God took my sin, he put them on Christ, he punished him in my place, that when he rose from the dead three days later, that it was his proclamation that he was victorious over sin and death. And now we see what Christ has done. I recognize that my sin requires death. I need a substitute, so I believe in what Jesus did. I put my trust in him. I believe in him. I depend on him. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And so now we live no longer for ourselves, he says there, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So we, we trust in him, then we love God. We love others. Our neighbor is ourself. We give, we're generous, we care for the sick, we strengthen the weak. We do all this to honor Christ. So do you know Christ? Are you ready? Are you ready to give an account? I've been here long enough that I can look out on this sanctuary, and this is one of those types of churches where people tend to sit in the same place all the time. You know who you are. I know who you are. A um, hundred, two hundred faces that I can see here, they're not here anymore. And they weren't all an elderly. They weren't all predictable that, well, you know, they, they knew he wasn't going to last but three more months or something sudden, tragic. It will happen to all of us. You may never see me again. I may never see you again. This may be the very last worship service we're ever here together. As a pastor, I want to meet God knowing that on this day, I urge you with the words of Jesus that you be ready so that you're ready to meet him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for the privilege of hearing your word to be warned. This is nonsensical without the help of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to give us faith. We pray that we would be ready, that we would not live for those things that maybe not in and of themselves are wrong, but they can, they can lull us in the wrong direction. They can take us down a wrong road. Help us to be wise and not foolish. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.